Hello and welcome, Kyle Swanson. Hello, David. How are you, brother? Ah, uh, really good. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you for joining us. Kyle, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Well, my name is Kyle Swanson. I am married to Jacqueline Swanson. Uh, we call her Jackie. And we have a nine and a half month old baby named Lucy. She's a beautiful little girl. Uh, grew up in Southern California. Uh, spent uh, 20 years at Grace Community Church under John MacArthur. That's really where the Lord kind of saved me and and uh, got hold of my life. Uh, I spent time there going to the master's university and the master's seminary where I received my ministry training. And I am currently serving as the pastor, as a pastor on staff and an elder at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. So take us back to the beginning. How and when did you become a Christian, Carl? Yeah, uh, God's grace in my life. I grew up in a Christian family uh, with a dad who was a church elder, mom who was a, a musician, piano player, very actively involved in the church. And so uh, I cannot ever really remember a time where I did not understand and know the truth about God's word and 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 kind of have a mental assent of who God was and who Jesus was as as uh, as the Lord and Savior of this world. Um. It's hard for me to say the moment that I came to know the Lord personally, but it was probably sometime in my late teens, early 20s, while I was at Grace Community Church, uh, where that drive to have Christ as my personal Savior, not just family Savior and Lord, uh, became uh, became important to me, and, and, and where I really had that deep conviction of sin and desire to serve and follow Him. Uh, so the Lord's been very kind to me. Um, but probably sometime I'm 43 now, so probably sometime, um, 25 years ago or so. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you feel the call to ministry and what happened? Yeah. So God is very kind in many, many ways. Uh, he allowed me to pursue my passion at the time, which was, uh, cooking. So I went to culinary school. I spent time in the restaurant business in Los Angeles and in Colorado. Uh, I, was working in that industry and kind of my desire was to kind of build up my, my name brand and then open my own restaurant and uh, was working toward that end. Uh, but by the grace of God, my college pastor at the time at Grace Community was a man named Rick Holland. Many of you know his name. And uh, he was in summer of 2004 was preaching a series on, on missions and, and the impact of missions around the globe and how God was using very small and insignificant human beings to accomplish uh, amazing things for the church. And he was sort of putting a call out to, you know, the 400, 500 men who were in the college ministry and wondering why so few of us were, had, had a, a desire to go towards ministry. And he put a call out kind of, I don't want to say blaming the culture in California, but there is sort of a, a you know, a self-driven self-fulfillment culture there. And, and so he, yeah. he, he just sort of put a convicting call out, you know, that m maybe God was calling more of us into ministry than we thought. And in January of 2005, we had the first resolved conference. Uh, and after a very long, hard day, uh, it was raining in LA, which is, you know, that's, that's like the apocalypse. And so by the time I got down from LA to the conference in Anaheim, it had just been a horrible day, traffic accidents, you know, I was stressed out, get to the conference and just ask the Lord to to establish my heart there and want to be there and, and to, to be open to what he had for me. And Steve Lawson opened the conference 
And he said, really, the goal of this conference, it was called Resolved because the idea was a 17-year-old Jonathan Edwards had written 70 resolutions to set the trajectory for his life and ministry. And if a 17-year-old can have that kind of conviction then, why can't young adults have that kind of conviction now? So that was the drive for college and young adults to have that. So Steve Lawson put out the call. He said, you know, the, the goal and desire of this ministry is to call young men out of the shadows uh, to step forward, to carry the torch of the gospel of Jesus Christ with resolve. And it was just at that moment, I, uh, the, the Lord, it was like, it was like the light came on right on me and the Lord saying, this is why you're here. Yeah, and yeah. just, it just changed my whole heart and attitude. I went back to work after that conference and I, I hated everything about the restaurant business. Uh, the Lord just took that desire away and put it towards ministry. So I left that and went back and finished my undergrad and then went to seminary. So God, like yeah. I said, God's been very kind and very clear with me. Wow. So good. So good. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Rick Holland's ministry, then make sure that you check him out. He's a wonderful brother, a great mm. preacher as well, Kyle White. Amen. He's one of my favorites. I spent 14 years in the college ministry as a young student and then staying with him kind of as a, a disciple and then as a Bible study leader. And uh, he's had a, a huge impact on me. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. You've written a brand new book titled Isaiah's Great Light, focusing on the Old Testament book of Isaiah. There you go. Brilliant. Thank you for that. <laughs> what made you choose uh, this book over the other 65 within the canon of Scripture, Carl? Yeah, amen. Uh, I, I have a deep love for the Old Testament. Uh, I see it as the uh, the foundational proving ground of God's covenant love and his plan of salvation for the church. Uh, and so when I was in seminary at the master seminary, I that was Isaiah was one of the books, sorry, Isaiah was one of the books that I was less familiar with. And I wanted to take a class to grow my understanding of the book. So uh, Dr. Greg Harris, another phenomenal expositor, great faithful man of God, uh, taught a class called the Exposition of Isaiah. And as we studied, I just began to, he broke it down so succinctly. You know, Isaiah is this big prophetic work that can be hard to understand and hard to approach, you know, but it's that old adage, how do you eat an elephant? You, you know, it's just one bite at a time, you keep going. And so he broke it down into very understandable parts, uh, gave kind of a background of what Isaiah's purpose was, what God's design was. And I began to just see God's plan of of loving care and faithfulness to his people and how regardless of how unfaithful they were and in turn how unfaithful we are that god's yeah. faithfulness will overcome all of that and yeah. so the in i in the old testament isaiah is the gospel and so when i had my time to come to redeemer bible church and begin a preaching series uh, i chose to dig into that study that i had done and to preach a series on what we call the servant songs in Isaiah. So these are four prophetic works uh, that foretell the coming and ministry and finished work of the servant, the Messiah, uh, sent from God to save his people. And uh, so it, it came out of a sermon series that I preached here at Redeemer Bible Church, eight series, or eight sermons rather. And when I finished that, the people here at the church were so encouraged and so enlightened by, you know, diving into an Old Testament book they weren't familiar with. They said, what else are you going to do with this? And I didn't want to let it go. And so I, I thought, what a great idea. I've got 50,000 words of sermon manuscripts and hundreds of hours of study and research. Let's just take that 
source material and turn it into a book. So that's where it came from. Brilliant. And who did you have in mind as you, as you finished writing the book, Carl, who's this book for? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think it's important to distinguish between works of academia, you know, which are designed to really challenge different perspectives and viewpoints from a high research perspective and books that are designed to encourage and disciple and, and um, and give a devotional aspect to those people in the church, and really, this is who that that book is for: is your your I don't want to say average in a in a pejorative term, but your your regular church goer who hasn't spent a lot of time uh, getting to know the Old Testament. This is I don't want to say an intro level book, but in a lot of ways it is. I give a lot of background on Isaiah. I want you to know the man who he is, his family, his background, his calling from the Lord, his culture and his context, and then some uh, some intro notes on hermeneutics and, and interpretation of scripture so you understand where I'm coming from and why I came to the conclusions I did. And then really just to encourage and, and, and you know, emblazon your soul to see the love of God for his people and and be excited about reading his Bible. Yeah, I love I love that about the book that you took the time to do that, because before reading any book of a Bible, it's so helpful, isn't it, to spend time understanding the genre, its context and what the original biblical author was intending to communicate to his original audience. You spend some time unpacking that, like we said in your book. What do we actually know about the author? Carl? Yeah, so there, you know we kind of have to piece his life together a little bit. We don't know a a, a ton about him, uh, but what we do find out uh, an interesting kind of rabbit trail. I went down in my study is that he's called the son of Amos 13 times. Now that should tell us something. Anytime you see a phrase repeated over and over, especially as a descriptor, you want to ask the question, a good inductive Bible study question is, why is he called the son of Amos? This who is Amos, and why is that important? Because that's a that's a clue. And so we come to find out that Amos was uh, most likely the brother of one of the kings. So that means Isaiah probably comes from privilege. He may have even been, and I think I would contend he was a member of the royal household, an extended member of the royal household. That he was a man of privilege. That he was a man of access. Uh, probably living a life of relative comfort. He had a wife uh, who is also called the prophetess. We don't know if that means she was also a prophet or if that just means the wife of a prophet. Uh, Had a couple of sons uh, whose names were both, you can read about them in the book, but uh, both of them were given names that had prophetic intent, kind of giving God's future plan. Um, But that stuff is important because when you see Isaiah's call to ministry, uh, not only is he in relative proximity to the temple and he had access to the temple, but this is a man who would have gone from a life of ease and privilege to being the most hated man in the country within just a few years because he's this you know guy who's around the royal family he he uh, gets all the privileges of that and now he's going to come and say all of you are under God's judgment and so to accept the role of a prophet you know everyone wants to be a prophet today oh i'm a prophet of god and you know, but do we really consider the cost of what that means? And Isaiah paid dearly, not only with at the end of his life, but as a really a suffering soul, calling his very beloved family and nation to repentance and being hated for it. So that stuff, that background really sets the tone for his heart. You hear his voice coming across uh, in the the pleas for repentance. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, 
he really did sacrifice his entire life uh, to obey and serve the Lord. Yeah. We spoke a little earlier about how you was called into ministry. What do we know about how, how Isaiah was called into as a, as a prophet? You know, in Isaiah chapter six, uh, we see this. It says, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne he, he in the temple and and the temple's filled with smoke and the train of his robe. And, you know, Isaiah is just blown away by this royal and divine scene of God's holiness and his magnitude. And he was probably somewhat caught in a complacent lifestyle of, you know, this uh, comfortable royal life. And he sees this and it's shocking to him. And, you know, God expresses uh, this desire for someone to go and be his mouthpiece. And Isaiah being blown away by the but the magnitude of God's glory, just volunteers, Lord, here am I. And he has yeah. to be cleansed and he has to be uh, purified by the the divine, you know, fire from the altar. But but it was it would have been a, a very traumatic experience, but a, a very good one, uh, a tone setting and life altering uh, a call to ministry. Uh, and so uh, you know, I think something that we learn from that, of course, these are descriptive texts and not prescriptive. So we don't look for that to happen in our life. But what we yeah. do look for is that God will make it very, very clear uh, if if you are called into ministry, he will pave the way for you. He will he will kind of like John six says, no one can come to me unless the father uh, draws him. And that that word is literally drags like drags a dead corpse over, you know, that God is going to grab hold of you and pull you in. And and I can say in my own way, that's exactly what he did for me. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So what was happening at that time? What was the context that he was writing in? Yeah, so we're getting we're getting to a time, you know, in the 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 latter half of the eighth century BC, where Judah's kind of living fat off the land. Israel has sort of the northern ten tribes. The, the kingdom has split. You have the 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 United Kingdom reign under David and Solomon, and then um, the the kingdom splits when uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam uh, divide the kingdoms among themselves. Ten northern tribes. Uh, and what happens is this large world empire called Assyria is coming to power. They're very violent. They're very godless, um, you know, uh, um, um, uh, idol worshiping people. So they start making incursions into other nations to conquer and expend their empire. And they they effectively uh, conquer all of the northern 10 tribes. So Judah is sitting back watching this. They're the southern two tribes, Jerusalem and kind of the southern part of modern day Israel. And they're watching what's going on, but they're they're not heeding God's call for repentance. They're not really changing. They're they're sort of instead looking to the south and saying, "Hey, Egypt, why don't you join with us and and we'll kind of have a military alliance against uh, Assyria?" And in the meantime, Assyria is making now they're making incursions into Judah. They they conquer Lachish and some other places, and they're at the doorstep now of uh, of Jerusalem. And one of these, the scenes that we see in the book of Isaiah is uh, Hezekiah has become king. He's he's a righteous man. He wants to honor the Lord. He reestablishes uh, the uh, temple worship and 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 honor of the book of the law. He tears down the Asherah poles in the high places. Um, and Assyria, this this wicked army of one hundred and eighty five thousand plus people, is camped outside of Jerusalem, and he entreats the Lord for help. And there's this intriguing kind of historical interlude from Isaiah 36 to 39. 
And what we see in Isaiah 36 and 37 is this scene that's repeated three times in the Old Testament. And it's the only historical narrative repeated three times. And again, we ask ourselves the question, what is so significant about this story that it's repeated three times? And I think the answer, again, is God's covenant faithfulness for his people. And in that bilateral nature of the Mosaic covenant that they existed in, we understand from Deuteronomy that God said, if you keep my statutes, I will be your God and you will be my people. So there was this understanding that so long as the people pursued God and were faithful to him, that God would be their protector. And instead of going to Egypt and other countries to seek the military might, the chariots and the armies that would protect them, Hezekiah says, God, you are the only one who can protect us here. And God, in his covenant faithfulness to Israel right then, sends the angel of the Lord, yes, the angel of the Lord, and wiped out the entire Assyrian army. And it's one of those things where we look at that and say, no matter what adversary we have against us, no matter what uh, situation or adversity we will face, that when we trust and lean into that covenant uh, faithfulness of God, he will provide a means for escape, whatever he deems just. And in that situation, it proved God's character. It proved God is not the, you know, drum beating, you know, uh, angry God of the Old Testament. And we have the nice, you know, gentle God of the New Testament that he was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast covenant love uh, and demonstrated in that incredible historical narrative there. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. You've touched on God's nature there. We get some great insights, don't we, into the character of God within the pages of Isaiah. Uh, tell us about that, Kyle. What do we what do we learn about God here? Yeah, well, we learn number one that uh, you know His holiness is not to be trifled with. The entire reason for Isaiah, and I would I would argue this is a great motif to understand the book, is Isaiah is effectively called as the prosecutor uh, in front of the divine court the divine and. Court. And he's calling the nation of Judah before God to, un, uh, to to be read out the the accusations against them. And so if you've ever read Isaiah and you get to about chapter 28, 29, 30, and you're like, I can't handle any more judgment. You just got to keep going because yeah. in another few chapters, you hit this historical interlude. And then the last half of the book is all blessing. But what has to happen beforehand is the charges need to be read. And effectively, the charges against Judah against Israel, against all the surrounding nations, and then all the nations of the world are read uh, to, to show the listening audience why judgment was coming. But even in that, all of this blessing is peppered in, and all these promises of redemption and these promises of a redeemer and of ultimate salvation and a remnant being rescued from every nation, save Edom, all going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, and so when we understand that, but then we pass that and we get to the future. So then the last half, chapter 40 and on, uh, is, is God's plan of salvation. And so God first tells us about himself uh, in the first eight chapters there of uh, Isaiah 40 to 49 or 48. And then 49 to 57 or so is his plan of salvation. And then beyond that is the ultimate plan of restoration. And so we see all of this blessing pouring out. And that's really the context in which we find the servant songs where really this person, the servant of Yahweh is revealed as the agent by which all of this will come about. Yeah. Yeah. Isaiah's book is full of these rich, incredible prophecies. Firstly, just in case anyone watching isn't familiar with what prophecy is, please just explain that to us and also what his purpose is. 
Yeah, the purpose is not only I, I think first and foremost to demonstrate God's power and who he is. Like I I am the Lord. I have declared the end from the beginning and I'm going to share it with you because you're stuck in this myopic context of your life and what do we know about that? We know that if we if we don't know anything about the future, we can very easily lose hope. And so God being very very kind uh chose to reveal the future to us by prophecy, which is by the revealing of information about the future that we wouldn't have because we don't know the future through his chosen people, his prophets, uh, these men who were mouthpieces. So these guys would come along and reveal the future. Now, sometimes we have to, and then, you know, in our context, we have to look back and say, okay, was that the future for their life, kind of the immediate future? Was it was it sort of distant fulfillment in the life of Christ or was it far fulfillment in the end of all things? And uh, occasionally in Isaiah, what you see is all three of those in the same passage or in the same section. And so we have to, based on what we've known now from uh, the, pro the progress of history, okay, some of that was fulfilled in Isaiah's life or in the life of the nation. Some of that came about when, when Jesus was uh, living and doing ministry or, or just after, and then some of that is yet to be fulfilled. And so yeah, that's what we're yes. talking about when we talk about prophecy. Yeah. And, and, and these prophecies are so rich in detail. One of the accusations by critics about the book of Isaiah is actually that this was written after the event, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because it, because it is too good. What, what do you think about that car? Yeah, I've heard that accusation and uh, I, I reject it wholeheartedly because most of those accusations come from unbelievers anyway. So you're, you know, you don't find a lot of faithful God-fearing men who take God at his word and say, I don't think Isaiah wrote this because the yeah, Bible right. tells us Isaiah wrote this. <laughs> and uh, if we, if we move the second half of Isaiah, what many call Deutero Isaiah or, or the second Isaiah uh, to the, you know, second century BC or beyond, then it's not a book of prophecy. It's a book of history. He's recounting what already happened. Um but, you know, very, very much like, um, you know, other apocryphal books like the, you know, the Apocalypse of Peter or the Epistle of Barnabas or even the Book of First Enoch. You have books that are claiming titles to be written by other people uh, that you're already establishing a foundation of distrust. So we don't have a firsthand eyewitness. We don't have direct prophecy from God or an apostle writing uh, the words. And so... That that's automatically to me discounted as being part of the canon, and so I take this as God has every right and ability in the in the eighth century to tell Isaiah what's going to happen in the sixth century, uh, and have that be perfect in in its fulfillment because God already knows what's going to happen. And if we believe in the divine and we believe in the miracles of God and His ability to do that, there should be no problem. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. When people talk about prophecy in the modern church today, and certainly within the Pentecostal charismatic churches, prophecy can look extremely different to what we see in scripture. Why is that? And why should we be careful, Carl? Yeah, uh, there is an understanding, and I, I think it comes from a, a faulty historical theology uh, that prophecy was meant to return in the latter days. Now, we, we do understand that is going to happen, but the fulfillment of Joel 2, again, if we misappropriate that Joel 2 was fulfilled at Pentecost fully, and that that means that the extent of the church age is going to look like your sons and daughters will prophesy and you know speak in tongues and various things, 
um, that that should be the norm. But what we see from church history is that was not the norm until about the turn of the 20th century. And in a resurgence of uh, Pentecostal understanding, or really kind of the, you know, the birth of a faulty Pentecostal understanding uh, in uh, rural Kansas uh, in about 1900 or so, uh, there was a coming out of the second great awakening in America, this sort of really emotionally driven, uh, we must push people towards, we're, we're not going to let you leave until we, we see some conversions and we're going to drum up emotions. This is kind of what was happening at, at a church in Topeka, Kansas, a man named uh, Charles Fox Parham was a pastor. And there was sort of this spontaneous outburst of tongues that happened. And what it really was, was, was gibberish, but, but, but it was written down. There was a gal named Agnes Osmond who was writing down and she was writing in Chinese and out of nowhere, she's writing in Chinese. And so, you know, uh, Charles says, Hey, this, this must be the the pouring out of the Holy spirit. And, and so he opens the school of, you know, sort of, uh, uh, supernatural ministry and he's going to train people in this and then he's going to send them out to the nations and so many people come and they do this and they go out to the nations well they get there and they realize nobody understands what they're talking about because they weren't really speaking any they weren't really actually learning foreign languages they were speaking gibberish now in the context of you know farmland sort of illiterate america at the turn of the 20th century this would make sense they would think they were doing something now, we have little scribbles of what Agnes Osmond wrote, and if you look at it now, it's clearly not Chinese. It was just scribbled lines, but they would have looked at that and thought maybe this is you know a Far East language. So others came along and said, well, I think you're right, but you got the interpretation wrong. It's not real languages. This is angelic languages. And so now it's a misappropriation of 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of angels, which is you know Paul's you know, hyperbolist comment there. Um, and 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 then things snowball from there, and it all stems from very poor exegesis, poor interpretation of scripture, and then uh, cultural or or experiential application of the text in a local context. And it snowballed from there, and it continued on in various waves. And ultimately, the theology developed to a sophisticated level enough to where it was accepted in reform circles. And I I I, I cannot accept it as a solid exegetical understanding of the word uh and so uh, you know and then when we when we translate well you know now we have to make exceptions because the prophecies are sometimes wrong and so maybe modern day prophecy is not the same as old testament prophecy it's kind of a lesser version but again we're speculating there's no textual basis and every textual example they give uh doesn't hold water and and, and yeah. so um ultimately we have to say uh that you know, when when God chooses to give words to man uh, and to give them as a mouthpiece, they will be given perfectly because they were in the past. Uh, Peter says in Second Peter one twenty one and 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 just before we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. These these were not invented words. We uh, we gave the prophecy given from God, and men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as as we wrote the scriptures. And men who are carried along by the spirit do not stumble, they don't stutter, and they don't make mistakes. And so everything that we have, and Peter also says in Second Peter 1, 3, that his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him that is his written word that we find in the Bible. So everything that we need is found in there. Yeah, really helpful, Cole. Thank you. Cole, you mentioned earlier how Isaiah responded to seeing the holiness of God. 
Do you think there's a danger that in our generation that a lot of people fail to keep in mind how holy he is and become far too casual in their walk with the Lord? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, uh, our, our one of my my heroes of of the faith, especially as a teacher of God's word, is R.C. Sproul. Uh, probably one of the clearest and most incredible teachers. He was. He might be the most brilliant man since Jonathan Edwards to live in America. Uh, he could teach on that level, but he could also teach children and everyone in between. And so, yeah. you know, quite often you can teach up here, but then nobody can understand you. And he had that ability to relate to everyone and be able to teach anyone. And so I admired him so greatly for his faithfulness to God in that. And he had such an understanding of God's holiness that it it almost made him furious when people didn't realize it because they're wasting their lives pursuing the flesh, pursuing things of this world that they're putting on equal par with God's glory and his holiness. And yeah. when we understand, you know, and we can, we can think of this in very abstract terms, but when we think of God's holiness as his transcendent perfection and glory, that is the greatest possible good in the universe. And, and we're, as C.S. Lewis used to say, you know, we're, we're like children content with playing with mud pies when we've been offered a holiday at the sea. Like yeah. the comparison is we're, we're playing with dirt in the slums when somebody has offered us the greatest thing we can imagine. And so the holiness and righteousness and purity and glory of God, this standard is if we understood it for what it really is, like Isaiah saw that we would drop everything, everything would fade into the, the background of, of in comparative value uh, to being worthless that we would pursue that with our whole heart because it is by far the greatest thing that God could, could possibly give us. Yeah. So good. So good. Again, as we look at the church today, Cole, we've seen that how the um, seeker sensitive uh, movement has grown as it's watered down the gospel to Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life. Mm. But what can we learn from Isaiah in his message, warning people that judgment is coming? Yeah. The, the holiness of God is real. We live in a universe that belongs to a creator and a king and a righteous, holy king. And he has established for us a standard of, of behavior, a standard of, uh, um, uh, of righteous living. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like anywhere else. You know, if you live in a nation, a, 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 a district, a city, it has laws. And what do we do with lawless people? You know, you're a lawless citizen. What do you do when somebody comes along and, breaks into your car or hurts a family member or murders somebody, do you just say, ah, you know, it's their life. They can live it however they want. And that's fine. Or do you demand justice? Well, well, we all want to demand justice. We say that guy should be in prison and he gets his due penalty for his crimes. But when it comes to us before the divine court, we want to say, no mercy, give me mercy, please. Or I don't believe in the divine court. Well, that's fine. You know, a lot of the, the, you know, cowboys and I'm in Arizona. So a lot of the cowboys in the old West didn't believe in the law either, but what happened to them? They lived as outlaws. They died as criminals, you know, and they suffered the due penalty for their crimes. And in the same manner, they, they might think, Oh, I'm above the law or the law doesn't have any effect on me. It catches up to everyone. And in the same manner, because we live in a universe that's not ours, we live as a, a daily, the breath in our lungs and the beating of our hearts is a gift from God. It's a, it's a very grace that we're still alive. So the fact that we exist in his ecosystem 
and we are going to live in high-handed rebellion against him makes us no better than common criminals. And so when we understand that, that the, the universe belongs to God, that as Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord and all that dwells there and every person that dwells on is his, that we are subject to him. And he has revealed to us his law, his standard. He has told us this is the, the ideal and you cannot reach it. But in my grace, I have provided the means to accomplish it for you and fill in that gap that you have, whether you realize it or not, you've already failed. You are already guilty of a divine death sentence because my perfect my perfection and holiness cannot tolerate sin. I'm, it must be dealt with just like any just society. But because I love you and have and have a, a desire to see all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, though, of course, we know that not all men will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desired will is to show grace and mercy. So he provided the means for that, that, that offense against his law and everything we needed to do to accomplish that perfect standard in Christ. He provided that this divine, perfect, holy sacrifice to be the, 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 the substitute for our penalty. Uh, and so, you know, that's predicted in these servant songs. The the suffering servant would come and endure the full unabated uh, wrath of God in order to, as Isaiah 52, uh, uh, I believe 15 says, sprinkle the nations clean. And that's a, a, a term like, like a, a priest would do. He would sprinkle the altar with blood and it would purify. So the blood of Christ purifies his people. And we know from Romans uh, chapter 10 that if anyone confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God is, has raised him from the dead, that he will be saved. And the beauty of that is it's simplicity, but also it's lifetime commitment because there's nothing we can do to add to what Christ did. But it's not just a matter of simply saying, OK, I believe Christ is Lord. OK, now I'm in heaven. It's the confession with our mouth is tantamount to saying that that my whole being, my whole body is professing that my knee is bowed to him as king, that everything that I do is for him. He's, I, I carry his banner. He's my king. And then also that God has given me this divine insight that, that I believe with my whole heart that God raised him from the dead, that the hope of my future salvation is in the fact that Christ conquered death, came back from the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Because of that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that our hope of our resurrection lies in that. And that's a divine gift. N- nobody comes back from the dead. We don't believe that stuff, but we believe Christ did and that his death and resurrection is sufficient for our salvation. Yeah, so good. So good. Wouldn't we learn about people's wickedness and about God's mercy through this book? I love this part because, you know, when, when we're about fast forward almost 700 years from Sinai. Okay, so we're at Sinai, we go through the wilderness, we come back into the promised land, and we have the recapitulation of the law and of the Mosaic covenant promises that God's saying, here's all my divine statutes and all the people saying, all these things we will do. And God's saying, if you do them, I will be your God and you'll be my people. I will protect you. Don't seek other nations. Don't, you know, intermarry and follow their gods and their their, uh, religion and, you know, seek after me. Fast forward almost 700 years. We have not had a period of more than 20, 30, 40 years in a row of faithfulness to that promise. We've had long extended periods, hundreds of years 
of unfaithfulness to this promise. And so when the Old Testament says that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, we have to see Isaiah in the context of Sinai. That's a 700-year patience. How many of us have 700 seconds of patience for somebody that irritates us or sins against us? And God has 700 years before he begins to execute his judgment. And even then, in his judgment, there is a salvific and redemptive story built into that and a redemptive eschatology built into that. And so God's going to punish, but at the same time, all in that, he is redeeming. And I think in our lives, even once we come to know Christ and we sin and we sin and we rebel and we reject and we, that God, because we're secure in Christ, is using all of those things in our lives to convict us, to refine us, to have those some of those consequences shift our thinking and our actions towards righteousness uh and and it's it's that shedding that mortification of sin and that continual pursuit of Christ likeness and it's like God is constantly molding us and shaping us into what he wants us to be and for all of us that's a lifelong process and that shows us the patience of God so next time somebody really irritates you or truly sins against you ask yourself how much patience do i have when God has had decades of patience with me and hundreds of years for Israel. Yeah, so true. So true. Cole, you do a great job of explaining the importance of hermeneutics and reading the Bible in context. It's almost a free gift that you get with with this book, <laughs> isn't it? Why is it important that we know these things so that we don't just go to any verses that we choose and make them try and fit our own agenda? Yeah, uh, I like to use the analogy, uh, and anyone who doesn't believe this is important, I'll just use their words against them. You know, oh, well, you said this. Well, that's not what I meant, but you said it. So I I believe that's what you meant. And then I just straight up use it against them, you know, in the analogy. And, and so that they see, oh, okay, I see what you did there. Yeah, it's not fair for me to use your words against you when that's not what you intended to use them for. We can always misinterpret words. And it's the same thing when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is written to us in very clear terms Two very, well, three rather, very in, easily interpretable languages across the entire linguistic spectrum. But we need a little bit of context. And so if all I gave you was one paragraph about my life and it was it was just a little snippet and you had no context about me, you might be able to speculate endlessly about who I was and what I was doing. And you you might get it right, but you'd probably be completely wrong when then later a thousand years later in the dirt you discover the rest of the story uh and then you see oh okay i was he was i was thinking the wrong country the wrong culture the wrong background and so then when you understand okay now that i know his context i i can clearly see why he was using that terminology and what he meant so the very same is true when we understand the historical context of when god wrote what he was dealing with across progressive history across uh, his redemptive plan, uh, w- when we see the purpose behind each book, every book of the Bible, it's not its not like the Quran that's just a random collection of sayings, right? Uh, every book of the Bible has a designed purpose, and it all builds toward a comprehensive whole of God's entire picture of everything we need to understand who he is and how to live in his plan of redemption. And so to understand each individual book for how it serves that that big purpose will help us to glean 
more carefully, clearly, and deeply what we should get from each book and why we should be reading each book. And it keeps us from stumbling into error. So it kind of serves as like, if you ever go bowling and, you know, for kids, they put those bumpers in the gutters so that the ball kind of, you know, it, it kind of does that for us. It keeps us from going in the gutter and getting it totally wrong. And, you know, as humans, we'll, we'll still never get it perfect, but, you know, we want to try to be as accurate as we can and to use those tools of what we call hermeneutics, which is just the tools of interpretation uh, to stay as accurate as we can in our interpretation and one of the reasons I did that in the book is because I wanted people to know where I was coming from with the conclusions I reached in my interpretation of the songs. But then also it's one of those things you can tuck in your back pocket for any book of the Bible. And hopefully it'll be helpful in that regard. Yeah, really good. Carl, there'll be some people listening right now that wouldn't didn't know that those um, bowling guards were for children. And they're going to now be panicking. <laughs> Well, thinking that we're suppose, a really good bowler, right? <laughs> yeah. I suppose anyone can use. Yeah, I, I, you know, hey, listen, let's use that analogy because in the hermeneutical world, without those guards, we'd all be in the gutter, right? So let's, right. Use, yeah. you know, so in the bowling <laughs> world, yeah, we can get great high scores, and that's the exactly the intended goal, so that we don't end up, you yeah. know, uh, bowling in a big least. zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things that you write about in the book is progressive revelation. Explain to us what this is and what it isn't, Carl. Yeah. So. In the in the the pouring out of 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 history, uh, you know, it's a it's a simple question to ask, and and it's kind of a self proving hypothesis when you ask the question: Is was Adam responsible for knowing the Book of Galatians? No, it wasn't written yet. What were the Galat was the Galatian church responsible for not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, they didn't have access to it, right? So. But but they knew about it. They knew about Adam's story, and they knew about the the law that God had given him not to violate, and and that served as a principle for them to understand. But in the progress of history, revelation is being revealed along the way. So as we hit that point, like uh, for example, the, the latter half of the eighth century BC, Isaiah's writing about the servant. Uh, would Adam and Eve have known about the servant? Well, they would have known that God had a plan for salvation because of the Genesis 3 promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent. But they wouldn't have known the motif, right? Now, would the nation of Israel have been responsible to know the name Yeshua and call him the Messiah who would come be born in Bethlehem and come from Nazareth? No, because that wasn't revealed to them yet. However, they would have been responsible to know that the the, that God's servant would come, that he would be the salvation of the world, and that he would come from these areas. So there, they would have had faith in this future person coming, whereas people who now at the life of Christ or after the life of Christ, once it's been revealed in history, would have the responsibility to look backward and know the revealed person of Christ as the Messiah and the fulfillment of Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, and so at the progress of history that way, it's like I, I use the example of a flashlight, you know, from from the, the light of the flashlight, the light coming out is this big. But by the time you get 15 feet away on the wall, the light is this big. So we have more of a revealed picture. So yeah. as we progress through history, the revelation gets bigger and we have more responsibility to understand it, know it, decipher it. Uh, and because we live on this side of the close of the New Testament canon, and now that we have 
almost 2,000 years, really over 2,000 years of church history and faithful men expositing the word, then we can grow and build on that of our understanding and knowledge of what we're supposed to understand from God's word. That's really what progressive revelation means. Yeah, brilliant. Really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Cole, you were blessed to have Dr. Steve Lawson write the forward uh, to his book for you. How did that come to happen? And also, what impact has Steve had on your life and your ministry? Yeah, well, like I said, Steve was uh, Dr. Lawson. Uh, I could never, I, I call him Steve in, in private, <laughs> you know, between you and I, I would never say that to his face. Um, I love the man. He's a dear friend. He really is. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, you know, I had the privilege of sitting under his preaching at the Resolved Conferences. He had a huge impact in calling me to ministry. Uh, I talked to him about it. My My wife, Jackie, actually grew up at his church in Alabama. And then came out to the master's college and then we ended up getting married. So he helped with our kind of our premarital situation. Um, and then later on in kind of the, the last few resolved conferences, I got to serve as his kind of his personal assistant and, and help him around getting to various places and, and uh, you know, getting in meals and being places with him. And then I did the same thing at several shepherds conferences while I was in seminary. We just got to become good friends and, and grew in a, in a deep uh, friendship with each other. And he's been a tremendous impact on my preaching and, and my, uh, my understanding of being a pastor and a shepherd. And so when it came to writing the book, you know, I had a, I'm a nobody, right? So nobody knows who I am. And so early on, what we have to do is get faithful men who everybody knows to to kind of vouch for us. And so right. I couldn't think of anybody better to say, hey, would you please vouch for this book for me? And he said, I, you know, I, it would be an honor. He was actually in Ireland at the time. He said, I really don't have time for this, but I'm going to make time. And he wrote it. Uh, he, he read the book in about two days and he wrote the forward for me the next day while he was preaching a conference and teaching an expositor's workshop. The guy is a machine. <laughs> And uh, he he did not renege on his promise, and uh, I'm very grateful to him for that and and for his friendship and ministry. Yeah, amazing, so good. Thank you for that, Carl. Carl, we're about to take a very quick break before returning. So, Carl, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very important questions. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> Question one: What kind of music do you listen to? Well, anything that's good. Okay, I have a, a music degree from the Master's College, so or university now. So I love classical music. I got trained in that. I love jazz, like good, especially uh, mid 20th century LA jazz. Um, you know, I love a uh, rebel country, not, not the popular stuff that's on the radio, more like Johnny cash style. Uh, anything that is done with excellence and that, that shows a mastery of the craft uh, I can get into Um Anything that's done mediocre, I'll just leave to the side. There's too much good music to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Next question. What book or books are you currently reading? Uh, I'm currently reading a book called Crucial Conversations. Uh, it's not a Christian book, but it's one that really helps to it, – it, it's written by a kind of a conglomerate of, of secular business leaders – but it's it's what it was so funny about this book is the common grace of God. You read these concepts that they're outlining in personal interactions with people in the workplace, uh, in family life, in personal interactions, and it's just the common grace of God. It's almost like a, a a book of illustrations that we can then take and 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 tie to biblical principles of sinful anger and anxiety and 
preferring one another over ourselves and you know the, uh, these relational dynamics we see in the life of Christ with his apostles and things like that so that one's really helpful especially on our pastoral team here our team is wonderful and we love each other but we can always improve in those communication dynamics uh currently uh, just about to start a new book from my new pastor coworker Daryl Harrison uh, called Just Thinking About Ethnicity. Uh, it's actually in America, uh, the month of February is Black History Month, and we're going to make this book uh, our church book of the month, encouraging people not to just think about a worldly perspective on race or ethnicity. I don't think race exists. We're one human race, but lots of different nations, but uh, to... Uh, uh, to follow Daryl and Virgil's biblical example of uh, what it means to be from different nations and how Christ has united us uh, in in his body. Uh, and so uh, kind of looking into those two, uh, I'm <laughs> I'm a bit of a history buff. I'm listening. I, I, I do a lot of audible in the car. I listen to audiobooks. Say you are, yeah. And so I'm listening to a, uh, a Hitler biography because I want to understand the mistakes of the past and how not to repeat them and kind of the development of World War II. Uh, and then uh, I've been diving into Michael Heiser a little bit just to kind of understand his perspectives a little bit. So I, I just recently finished The Unseen Realm and another one called Reversing Herman. Some some perspectives in there I, I don't totally agree with, but I think he was a brilliant scholar who needs to be contended with. And uh, I really appreciated his perspective on some things. I do think he was a faithful brother. Yeah, great stuff. So, Cole, do you plan on writing anything else? Yes, uh, I, I'm currently actually writing for our church has a a resource ministry called Redeeming Truth. Uh, so you can find us at redeemingtruthmedia.org uh, and then anywhere on our website, redeemeraz.org. We have a podcast. Uh, we have a pastoral blog. I'm writing on that. Uh, and then because I I did a sermon series and took that source material and wrote this book, uh, I'm currently preaching through Second Peter, uh, a verse by verse. And when I finish that, I'm going to be taking that material and writing a book on uh, the defense of the church uh, by an apostle and how to uh, how to identify and uh, and guard against false teachers. So I, I'm I'm going to formulate that into a into a book very soon. And a couple of other projects, one on intergenerational discipleship and some other things. Ah, great stuff. Well, we'll have to have you back on, Carl, once that book comes out. It sounds like yep. a great topic yep. to have a conversation on. Um, last signature bar question. What podcasts or sermons do you listen to? Well, Exposit the Word, of course. Uh, you know, um, The Bar, of course. Just Thinking. Um, you know, I, I listen to a lot of sermons from uh, a pastor named Jack Hughes. He's in Louisville, Kentucky. I I believe he might be the most talented, pure expositor alive. He is so gifted, and and if you if you're not listening to him, his series on Genesis, his series on Revelation, his series on foundations of a healthy church, unbelievable exposition of Scripture. Um, I listened to a lot of MacArthur and Rick Holland. They were my pastors for uh, for two decades. Uh, Steve Lawson, Alistair Begg, guys like that 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 just uh, encourage my soul. Teach me how to preach every time I listen, uh, and uh, yeah. I, I've been on several podcasts recently because of the book um, that guys that I listen to and love um, my, my brain's a bit scattered right now. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to recall truth be known. My friends, Eki and uh, Nathaniel yeah. Jolly, those guys on, yeah. on Twitter um, my, uh, uh, um, Bible sojourner, Peter Gaiman's podcast. Yes. Uh, brilliant. Uh, yeah. um, Grace and truth. Owen Strayan. These guys, they're just all a huge encouragement to me. Yeah. 
uh, not only for allowing me to be on, but guys that I listen to on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All, all good stuff there. Thank you. What we'll do is we'll make sure that we get a link to your uh, YouTube, t- your YouTube channel and podcast as well. And that'll be in the description wherever we, uh, wherever you're listening to this uh, interview as well. Before we let you go, Cole, please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, my, my closing thoughts, I, I always like to say, I want to say thank you to Sarah Sparks, who designed the cover of this book. I I cannot get over how beautiful this book is. And it was important to me uh, to have imagery that that um, expressed the truth of God's heart and his word. So Isaiah 9, 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And I gave her that verse and kind of some ideas of the imagery. And she produced this, which I, I I cannot get over how beautiful it is. She's a very talented singer songwriter. And she also, because it's a book about songs, the very end of the book wrote a new song. Uh, and uh, so that's published there in the back. You can find her Sarah Sparks on Spotify. Uh, she's got about a hundred thousand monthly listeners. She's beautiful music. And she wrote a song and it's, it's, it's on there on her music as well. Her other music is fabulous. Um, so thank you to her, to everyone who contributed on the book. Um, I, I just want people to know and love God's word. Uh, my desire is for you to read this book and for your heart to be set aflame, uh, for you to worship Jesus more, for you to see him and, and savor him more, for you to understand the heart of your father in heaven more. So please, if nothing else, read this book and just do it as an act of worship to God. Uh, whether you borrow it from a friend, I don't care if you buy it. I don't care if I ever make a dollar off of this book. I just want people to know Jesus better. Um, you can find me on Facebook. We'll be friends. Uh, um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, if that's your thing. I, I don't post a lot of pictures, but I am on there. Uh, and then, uh, of course, through our website, you can email me or, or find us through Redeeming Truth. Uh, I'd love to chat with you about Isaiah or if you have any questions on any of that stuff. Uh, I'm a pastor at heart. That's my desire is to just love and shepherd people towards Jesus. Yeah, wonderful, Cole. The six sermons that this book's taken from, are they actually available on the church website? Can people listen to those as well? They are. Um, and I'll, I'll clarify it's eight, uh, not eight, because sorry. that's better than six, but yeah, yeah. I don't want you to miss the last <laughs> two. So uh, I did I did uh, one for Isaiah 42, one for Isaiah 49, one for Isaiah 50, and then five for Isaiah 53. Uh, and so there's a series on our website. All of our sermons are cataloged by either speaker or by series. And there's a series called Behold My Servant, which is how two of the songs begin. That's that's God declaring to the world, you know, that everyone should listen because my my guy's coming. And so yeah. you can find that image and and that series and listen to all of those. And even I, I've had people who listen through the series while they're reading the book and it kind of helps exactly. to lock it in yeah. in two different ways yeah yeah no, that's a great idea i was thinking that so what i'll do is i'll find the link to that sermon series as well and i'll make sure that's in the description below wherever Wonderful. you're listening or watching as well so carl thanks again for your time really lovely to talk to you hey lovely to talk to you as well and like you said when i was uh passing through london in july next time i'm there we're hanging out definitely <laughs> we'll do that carl thank you great <laughs>